Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Welcome back to the Collective Trauma Summit. My name is Thomas Hubel. I'm the convener of the summit. And I'm really happy to be here today again with you, Richard, Richard Schwartz, and also Duran Young, uh, both deeply immersed, uh, Richard, the founder of IFS, and both deeply immersed in, in spreading the preciousness of IFS in the world. So most welcome, very warm welcome, both of you. Thank you, Thomas. It's really great to be back with you. Yeah, Honored to be here. Thank you for the invite. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation because uh, I feel there are a lot of resonances and there is like a deep mutual mis- mission that I believe we share in, in deeper healing work in our social fabrics. Let's start. You know, internal family systems, I think, is spreading as a, as a therapy. It's spreading as a healing modality. And, and I would be interested, what, what's the most alive uh, in this work at the moment for both of you? And um, what, what do you feel is the most exciting in your own development at the moment where you feel there the work's expanding, growing, updating, and, um, and reaching out into the world? And uh, maybe, Richard, since you found it at work, maybe you can start and then hand it back over to Duran. Okay, sure. So... What we hope to be talking about today is is exciting to me, and uh, Duran and I have done some things together around it, the topic of racial legacy burdens and uh, bringing IFS to that arena, and in general, bringing IFS out of psychotherapy so that it can be applied to more social kinds of issues. So we have initiatives to bring it into uh, the coaching world with trying to reach the influencers in our culture with it. We have programs designed to bring it to the public directly now. We're going to have a presence in the whole psychedelic revolution. And I'm working hard to try and make IFS the map to that territory. So I could name a couple others, but those are some of the, the things that keep me going. Hmm. Cool. And Duran, I'm so happy to get to know you today. So maybe you can share a little bit what's exciting for you. Yeah, I think for me, what's exciting about IFS is that it is a systems model, so it can be easily applied to different groups of people um, and organizations and you know communities. And so uh, when there's a collective trauma that impacts marginalized people, of any source, I think that IFS can be a roadmap or, you know, just seeing things from a systemic perspective versus uh, traditional therapy models are very individualistic. 
Um, and that's actually one of the, the legacy burdens. Uh, legacy burdens are things that have been passed down and around parts of us that continue to kind of generationally spread. Um, and we know that racism, patriarchy, materialism, and last but not least, individualism are four of the collective legacy burdens of society currently. And these are things that we t- we just kind of got passed down to us. It's in the water that we're all drinking, um, in the air that we're breathing. And it's really hard to notice these things because they're so woven into the fabric of our society. Um, but as we start to look at policies and systems and impacts of these systems that they have on people, uh, we can see that these things are very important to uh, look at and unpack and to explore the ways that they're shaping our lives and how our lives may need to be updated, um, how our programming may be still outdated, and how we can update our systems through either psychedelic-assisted therapy, as Dick mentioned, with IFS. Uh, legacy burdens are sometimes the most ingrained parts of us, uh, you know, like racism and and white supremacy culture are so ingrained into my life into kind of how I navigate life that it can be a bit difficult to really start to bring all of that out and look at it. Um, but I feel like IFS really gives us a, a model or a framework to really look at the parts of me that have um, kind of been programmed to, to, to see myself in a very derogatory way, um, parts of me that other people see in, in a derogatory way, and how we can really start to understand that all parts of our society are connected, um, and what hurts me also hurts you. Mm, beautiful. So that's that's very much along the lines, of course, of our summit, and also what I'm deeply interested in, like what's collective trauma, what's collective trauma healing, and how can we have a kind of an interdependent systemic view on individual, mm-hmm. ancestral, and collective trauma. And you both, in a way, uh, spoke to that a little. Let's zoom in right away because you both mentioned it. So the legacy burdens. So when we say there's there's my individual biography and there's the stuff that I go through in my childhood attachment and in my personal growth, but then there, there are ancestors and there's a collective framework to the individual as an interdependent whole. And I'm curious when like how how can we imagine working on what you call legacy burdens? like in IFS, how can I imagine to work on that transgenerational transmission of mm-hmm. trauma and what works, what's, what's maybe more difficult and, and how can, can we as, as your listeners um, come with you deeper into the understanding of what's a legacy burden and how to release it? So IFS believes that we all have these parts that uh, other systems would call subpersonalities. And as I was in the early days exploring what keeps these parts of us in extreme roles, I learned that there were extreme beliefs and emotions that had come into our systems from trauma and attached to these parts. The parts would describe that. They would say, there's this tar on my skin or this, this, burnt, this uh, coal in my gut or burning coal or this weight on my shoulders. And as I explored what that was and how to help them unload that, I learned that these were extreme beliefs and emotions that had come into the system from traumatic experiences or attachment injuries and attached to these parts and drive them almost like a virus. And I came to call those burdens. And then as I was doing that, it became clear that some of these burdens didn't come from the client's direct experience that they uh, had inherited in a sense from either their family, their direct family lineage, or from their ethnic group, or had just absorbed from these things that are floating around in the culture. And so I, to distinguish them from the personal burdens, I started calling those legacy burdens. And that's when I got very excited about your work because I I could really see so many parallels. And uh, so we've, over the years, evolved ways to help these parts trust that it's safe to unload these legacy burdens. And it's fairly concrete, you know, because you can actually, the, the part can describe exactly what it is and can tell you when it's there and when it's gone. And then the reluctance often is if they give this up, 
they're going to betray their people who suffered so long and they need to suffer too. Or they took this in to try and protect their parents, this energy. And if they give that up, their parents are going to suffer. So there's resistance sometimes to giving them up. But once the part decides it's safe to give it up, we can just send it out of the system. And and like Duran was saying, it's a, it's a big player. Those kinds of burdens really organize many things about our lives. And they're very hard to find often initially because it is like the air we breathe. But once they're gone, they stay gone most of the time. So, Yeah, I would say uh, another theory that I like to kind of lay this on top of is the drama triangle. Um, if you look at it from the perspective of the drama triangle, you have a, a societal or global drama <laughs> that's playing out. And there, there are people taking sides that a lot of times the marginalized people are automatically put into a character, uh, category of victims. And the perpetrator or persecutor um, role is taken on by certain dominant cultures or people who have dominated the victim or folks that are victimized. Um, and then you have folks from both of those categories who want to kind of go into the middle and attempt to rescue folks from either side. And, and I found myself both in the victim category and in the, uh, the rescuer category a lot as a therapist and as a black woman. And I'm learning that that doesn't really serve anyone and it definitely doesn't serve me. So what I'm learning from IFS is that the, the, the main role for all of us is to go inside to ourselves and to these inner children who never really properly grew up. Uh, these children who took on these burdens weren't able to fully develop emotionally, weren't able to develop the full level of compassion that's needed to actually bring healing to the world and to their self, um, and have really been kind of taking on these different roles versus being our true authentic version um, of who we were meant to be. So uh, that's kind of the way that I like to look at IFS and um, to look at it from a collective, collective standpoint is to see what kind of role I'm playing at any one point. You know, am I pointing the finger at others and blaming Am I feeling ashamed or guilty of the identity or the story that I'm holding? Or am I trying to rescue other people from their story and their experiences? Um, whether it be, you know, other black people, um, people of color, non, you know, not folks of non-color or white dominant culture. Um, really understanding that none of those are my genuine role and none of those roles are authentic to who I am. And I can only really, you know, serve my purpose and serve others well when I'm really uh, my full self. The expression of my full self, which I, which I believe, such as uh, we say in IFS, you know, is able to acknowledge fear, but doesn't operate from a place of fear. So, what you said right now uh, is also the the personal experience of you going through your own IFS journey. Is there is there anything else that you would add? On the one hand, why you felt attracted to IFS? So, what what attracted you, and and what do you see is the and like the strongest transformation that you experience through the process yourself, because that always transmits like the, the you know, modality the best. Yeah, I would say um, the, the, the most important thing for me has been to really be able to acknowledge when I'm hijacked by a part of me, when there's a, a activated part, younger part of me that's needing something from me. Um, versus going out in the world and seeking that, that refuge or that peace externally. I'm able to what we call unblend and see my higher self or my real self um, uh, from separate from that part of me. Um, and I can see like, yes, there's this thing that's trying to get my attention that wants something and needs something, but that something has to come from within. Um, and so IFS, we, we unblend from that part of ourselves. We are able to acknowledge that it's just a part of us. It's not all of who we are. And then we begin to witness what it wants to show us. Um, what it's holding on to, what story it needs to really uh, make sure that we understand, um, you know, my higher self, my the true expression of who I am. It really wants some compassion for me, some self-compassion. Um, and once it really feels like I get it, that I'm, I'm listening, that I'm there, that I'm going to be there, I'm going to continue to listen, I'm going to continue to honor that part of me in all the ways that it was tried to protect me, um, when I really understand the role and the job that it's taken on and why it has that job, then it can start to relax a bit and let me be in control of the system. Um, and so witnessing is one big part of IFS, really witnessing our story, our trauma, our experience. And then once we're able to acknowledge all the ways that our life has been shaped by that, we can then begin to integrate other aspects of, of who we really are. 
Um, you know, that one part of us doesn't have to dominate our life or our system. Um, for me, it shows up as a weight on my shoulders when we talk about legacy burdens. Um, when you're asking what has been my own biggest transformation, I would say carrying the weight of being an angry black woman. You know, even though it was justified, you know, and it felt very self-righteous, it was an extreme weight that was impacting my health, impacting my well-being, impacting the way that I relate to people that I love. Um, it was really, I, I feel like, restricting me um, in the expression of who I could be. So I had to start to work with that part of myself and slowly update my system to let that my, that part know that it doesn't have to protect me so hard as it did, you know, when I was in the military as a black woman or when I was in poverty as a child um, at, or during times where I was being abused or neglected as a child and still doing the things that kept me alive and helped me survive those situations. But it doesn't help me with where I am in my current moment. It doesn't help me stay present and grounded in who I am today. Uh, so that has been my biggest transformation that I'm you know, still constantly updating my system um, because external constraints are still very much real. We still live in a society that's based on white supremacy culture and male dominance. You know, that's another one that I'm slowly starting to open my eyes to is, oh, you're a woman in a very male dominated world. And how do I start to update my system and allow me myself to, you know, let down some of my guards, some, some of my protective measures so I can live with a little more flow, a little bit more ease and a little more peace in my own mm. personal life. Yeah, thank you. That's very strong. And uh, and also, Richard, like given we we got now like the the inner experience of going through the process from Duran, how do you see the relationality? What value does relationality, the support of one nervous system with another, play in IFS? Because what I heard is is a lot of Duran's inner work. Is there any emphasis in IFS on the on the relational dimension and the relational support, the safety that mm -hmm. that creates, co-regulation? How do you relate to to those terms in your work? Yeah, um, I'll give you a little history of that because I, when I first encountered what I call self in in clients and saw how much the self can take care of these parts, the way Duran was talking about. I got all excited because I had parts that didn't want people depending on me. I, you know, I'm a white male American. So I thought, okay, my relationship isn't that important in contrast to other therapies where it's all about the relationship. And, uh, and then I, I did some unburdening on my own and I started to shift and I was lucky to have some students that, that shook me up about it and said, no, you, you, the relationship is still crucial. And I came to, to appreciate more and more how much what I bring to my clients allows their protective parts to trust the safety of my presence. Mm -hmm. And without that, they're not going to do the work. They're just, and they shouldn't actually, they shouldn't let me in unless they can sense that I have these C-word qualities that I talk about with self. So now, uh, this is many years ago that I had this revelation, but now the, the relationship is crucial. The facilitator's own system and how much facilitators have to work with themselves to be able to hold these fields that, that we have to create for people to be safe, to be that vulnerable and to go to these places we want them to go to so they can unburden this stuff. So th that was one of the parallels I saw in our work is mm -hmm. now yeah. the importance of the therapist's parts because the, the therapists work on themselves so that they can hold what I'm calling self, but what you have other words for, which you know I, I totally saw the parallel in your book too, mm -hmm. uh, so that we can be that, uh, if we can hold that, then it's sort of like a tuning fork that'll bring that out of the people we're, we're working with. 
So, yeah, so it's, it's been a shift over the years to the point where the relationship is really crucial now. Beautiful. No, I love it. And I also love what you said. Uh, the second point is that how as facilitators, therapists, or people who are coaches, or that, we, that we, we go through our own ongoing integration process because that really opens up our system to hold that space. Mm-hmm. and to be in relation. So I think I want to just underline, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's a very crucial part of like embodied or let's walk our talk, uh, exactly. like be able to really transmit what we say. Um, yeah, that's, that's very powerful. Like you are also working together and collaborating. I'm very interested, you know, one of the uh, collective trauma fields that we, I think, are all passionate about bringing more healing and light into. Um, and there are so many around the world, but let's say for now, for the U.S. context, is racialized trauma. You said mm-hmm. it you're in before, is structural violence, is inequality, it's a lack of diversity, a lack of opportunity. And and if we open it up uh, much wider, I call this the ring of trauma that goes from Alaska down the whole entire Americas mm-hmm. through Africa, through Asia, like a, a whole trauma field that has been created through colonization mm-hmm. and colonialism. And um, and I think we are we are here to also part of our purpose, it seems, because we are passionate about this uh, collective work also is to work on that and bring some healing or integration. And I'm wondering, maybe you can share a bit about your mutual experiences around working on racialized trauma, working on, on you know, I think it's, it's, it, it really needs a lot of skill, but it's, it's, we also run into difficulties. Mm-hmm. So I would love to, uh, for you to expand a bit and uh, let us be part of your experience of healing racialized trauma. Because I think it's so important. Yeah, I think for me, um, another thing that drew me to the IFS model was that it was created by a Jewish man, to be honest. And um, the fact that the Jewish culture also has a history of genocide similar to the African-American culture. um, I felt that that was something that we could actually come together around and to begin to acknowledge how our parts might be similar um, and and to kind of heal together in the ways that they're similar, but also acknowledge the ways that they're different. And, and heal the differences as well. And so for me, um, a lot of my close friends now are Jewish IFS therapists. And these are people that I've really been able to be with. And they've been able to see parts of me that I didn't even know were there. Um, we've been able to kind of share these healing, deep, deep, deep healing experiences um, that I didn't know were possible. And I think that for me, the best healing, the greatest, deepest healing, especially around legacy burdens, happens in collective spaces. Um, happens in communal healing. So I, I think that some of these things that we're all grappling with, that we're all, you know, when you really feel alone, like I'm the only one who understands this, no one understands me. These are the types of burdens that really have to be healed together. Um, and so that's just been my, my personal work has been, you know, bringing groups of large groups of people together from different backgrounds to really start to hold compassion for each other um, and for themselves. And, um, I think that the Heirloom Summit, when we did uh, this Black History Month, uh, Black History Month for 2020, 2021, yes. Like, what year are we in? The uh, the coronavirus has really thrown off my sense of time, I will say as well. Um, but uh, Black History Month this year, we were able to gather a large group of people, over 100 people together, who were committed to doing communal healing work together. So, uh, committed to trusting the process, trusting each other, trusting ourselves. And building what Dr. Schwartz kind of mentioned uh, or what Dick is referring to as a collective sense of self. When there's a large amount, a large mass of self energy in a room or even virtually in a space or all holding space for each other and we're sending the most positive intentions to each other. I think that there's a lot of potential there. Uh, versus what we see a lot of oftentimes polarizations, you know, people uh, being very defensive, people protecting themselves from very, you know, uh, fearful places doesn't really promote healing. So to create environments and spaces where people can start to acknowledge their own traumas and hold space and compassion for the traumas that we're all holding, um, I think is, is really the pathway to uh, healing and for all of us around the world. Beautiful, Duran. And, and I think what Duran was saying by holding the self-energy in a group is similar to what you call 
uh, causal energy. Isn't that right? The creating that field. There is something about the language that can be helpful because when, especially with, with white people's fragility about acknowledging their racism, it's a lot easier to to say, I have a part that carries that legacy burden of white supremacy and to go to that part and get curious about it than to say, I'm, I'm a racist and I'm going to find my racism. So there is something about the language that frees people up. And we, we did find that in the Heirloom Summit as well. Yeah, I wound up doing a piece of work on myself that was very powerful because I do still hope to do affinity groups for white people around unburdening not only the racist legacy burden, but the, the parts of them that want to deny and don't want to see and keep them looking away all the time. And then the parts of them that are afraid to act once they do see and to find and, and heal those parts. And uh, so I did a big personal piece of work with Duran that was very powerful uh, with those parts of me. And I think it always stems back to something, Dick, that you taught me about um, survival terror. You know, everyone's afraid of dying. That's normal. <laughs> you know, it's a, a normal human behavior to want to uh, protect yourself if you if your nervous system feels like it's under attack. Um, and so that very young feeling gets trapped inside of all of us, I think, especially in America where our culture doesn't really perpetuate uh, families being supported. You know, it's kind of like the parents are responsible for the children and that's it. One of the things that's really drawn me to the African culture, I went to um, Ghana, West Africa during my graduate studies. And one of the things that I really learned from from that culture was the, the sense of connectedness, the sense that when a child is born, the child belongs to the village. You know, and if the village, if something is happening in the village or if a child in the village is sick, the first place we need to look is the well. You know, if, if we're all drinking the same water and everyone's kind of experiencing similar symptoms or patterns, we have to get curious about what, what's in the water, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that that systemic view of the world that a lot of uh, Eastern philosophy carries, a lot of people of culture have carried, continued to pass down this, this idea that we are connected, sometimes a little overly connected, you know, that we're still enmeshed, um, which is, is very much that rescue mentality. Um, but to really go into ourselves and to empower each person to uh, be a part of a collective and to not feel alone or isolated, I think is really important when we're talking about these legacy birds where people are really afraid, you know, black, uh, people of color are afraid of being open with the dominant culture. The dominant culture is afraid of, you know, maybe some guilt or shame that might be lurking behind the scenes. Um, and so it can be very intimidating for us to have these very vulnerable conversations with each other, especially if there's no framework that's kind of simple, gives us uh, ways to name things like white fragility, like uh, anti-blackness or white supremacy culture, very uh, less object less blaming, more objective. Um, and I think that 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 acknowledging the real terror that comes with um, saying you might have to give up a privilege, you know, you, you've maybe survived mm -hmm. your life off of having white privilege. You didn't even know that it existed. You didn't even know that it's been there this whole time. And now what does it look like to, to navigate life with that privilege and, and being able to acknowledge that it's actually present um, and that, that it's not present for someone else? That was something that IFS has really helped me unpack because I grew up in poverty. And a lot of my family is actually still in poverty. A lot of the people that I love and grew up with, friends and family, are still very much in these oppressed and depressed places still in Texas. Uh, where large groups of people of color just don't have access to economic resources like healthcare, education. Um, and so for me to have access to those things and start to see my world differently to, to help my parts get updated on where we are today meant that I had to acknowledge that I have economic privilege, that I have certain resources um, and, and possibilities and potential that everyone that looks like me doesn't have. And to not own that from a place of guilt or shame, but to own it from a place of empowerment. Um, that it means that I can advocate for somebody who doesn't have the resources or privileges that I have. And it means that I can start to, to you know, share those with people in, in certain ways just by acknowledging that I have it. Mm. And, and the healing that comes with realizing that it's not your fault if you don't have it. Um, I think I spent mm. most of my life trying to understand why I couldn't just do everything the white way. Because, you know, as a child and in the military, I was taught kind of that the white way was the right way. 
And of course, you know, we all want to do things the right way because that's what survival means. Um, to stay connected to the society, to stay connected to the system that's um, providing resources. Um, so we all want to be seen as good or accepted or um, included, uh, really is the word inclusion. Um, but knowing that you not being included is sometimes not hasn't, doesn't have anything to do with who you are and what your story is, but really the external constraints that are in the system mm. or that was placed by the system. And, um, you know, some, uh, so first of all, I want to underline the beauty of doing the inner work and then that leading to an empowerment of outer work, like mm -hmm. of cultural influence. And I heard this now when you spoke, and like I heard this, okay, something changes in me and then I have a different empowerment to mm -hmm. actually be a co-creative cultural force mm -hmm. to, to shape society from a, deeper place of inner alignment that sounds mm -hmm. very powerful and and then i want to come back then i have uh, two questions arose in me the first is and maybe you can both comment on that so when you know like uh therapists like resma resma menachem mm -hmm. uh speak to you know working on racial trauma in separate groups and then maybe later doing the work together when we are ready for it and what's IFS take on that? Do you work with mixed groups? Do you work with separate groups? What seems better, more suitable, more powerful? Is it different from situation to situation? Is it organic? How do you look at it? I think one thing for me as I work on like that, that legacy burden of individualism, I think about, I don't think of term in terms of, you know, one or the other, either or, uh, you know, better or worse, good or bad. I, I'm really starting to think of everything as both and. I think there's a place and a time for everything. Um, and being able to honor all things is important. You know, every, wherever anyone is, being able to offer something that, you know, everyone can use. Um, and that, that looks different across different people um, and different levels of experience with healing, I think, um, especially collective healing. Not everyone is used to being in community. You know, like I said, people of culture, as Resma relates uh, to people of color, he says people of culture tend to be used to, you know, working together in communal settings, being a little bit more vulnerable um, and relying on each other. Quite frankly, I just got back from Puerto Rico. I uh, spent two weeks in Puerto Rico and I, I just loved the feeling of knowing I was part of something, you know, that people were, were watching me, that they were interested in me, you know, and I was interested in them. And there's just this level of resonance, I think, amongst people of culture that we just know that it's not all about us. It's never been about us because we were marginalized, you know, so we don't we didn't have the privilege of making life all about the entitlement of us most of the time. Um, and so I just see this this humility and this humanity um, that's really lovely when I'm with people of culture. And I think that we have to foster a culture of healing when we're in communal healing spaces. We have to say, what is this going to be like? What are the rules here? How do we respect each other? How do we um, honor each other? How do we honor differences? How do we honor similarities? Um, and so I think there's, it's a, really a matter of both and and preparing people for that. You know, it's just like you wouldn't want to take someone to fourth grade if they haven't completed third grade. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. It would be a disadvantage to them. And it would be a disadvantage to every other fourth grader who, you know, wants to learn at a certain baseline or who's expecting folks to have a certain baseline. Um, yeah. And what tends to happen, especially around racialized trauma, like Resma says, is if, if we're not on an equal baseline, if we're not at a certain place of, of seeing everyone as an equitable part of the whole, then we start centering the person who feels the most entitled in the room. Um, you know, whether it be the white dominant group, the, the heterosexual group, um, the men, you know, whoever's the most dominant presence in the room, we start to polarize towards that one segment of the, the group. Um, so really having folks be able to acknowledge their own parts. Um, in IFS, we say, speak for your parts, you know, that you're not just projecting your pain onto other people, but you're actively doing your work and we're all doing our work together. That there's no one, you know, person who's who's more in front or behind, but we're all here to do this work together. And what that means is that we're aware of our intentions first, but we're also looking for the impact. You know, we're able to notice that whatever I say, whatever parts I'm speaking for will have an impact. And that's the accountability that I need to be held to. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, you know, the ground rules, the, the holding space and making sure there's psychological safety um, in a container are things that are important. 
But I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's just a matter of what folks are ready for um, and what what work they've done previously. Yeah, I would basically agree. And it's something we're still trying to figure out exactly. Heirloom Summit was a pilot. And, you know, there were things I think about it that worked really well. And then I think there were people that got very triggered. So, yeah, it's and, and I'm, as a white person of privilege, not the one really to figure this out the most. And I'm, I'm trying to, to be very open to whatever feels right to people who could be hurt in those contexts. And and I think this might be a great place to say that I, I'm really a proponent uh, because of things like this and because there are levels. Um, I'm really a proponent of uh, uh, group psychedelic-assisted therapy. Um, I was able to uh, participate in a ketamine group therapy session recently, and it was centered around racial trauma or you know trauma of marginalized people. There were a large number of people who identified as people of culture. And the way that the dominant folks in the room was able to hold space for us was very different than anything else that I've experienced because I think that we're all at a very unconscious place where it's oneness, you know, it's pure oneness. We're able to return to our original state of being. And uh, I think your heart opens in a different way. We, we learn to express ourselves and love each other in a different way. And, and that, that experience stuck with me, you know, and it'll be with me for the rest of my life. So I really think that that is kind of the gold standard for uh, collective trauma or racialized trauma right now. Um, that And not a lot of people have access to that. So that's one way that I'm using my privilege to take action and to advocate for, for more people that look like me to have access or people who come from, you know, economically marginalized places to be able to have access. That this is not something that, you know, actually belongs to the humans. It actually belongs to the land. That this is a shamanic um, way of healing that's been here for millions of years before, probably before humans were, you know, I believe mushrooms and uh, it, other uh, plants, medicine like that has been here probably way before me. So there, it doesn't, it's not owned by one person or one group of people. And I really feel like uh, all of us should have access to that deep, deep level of healing um, that goes far beyond our cognition. Cause sometimes our protectors just won't let us go beyond our thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that's true for me. I'm a highly intellectualized person. I can get up in my head really quick. Um, Dick kind of mentioned the legacy burden of men wanting to avoid intimacy or vulnerability. I've noticed that with a lot of, especially black men, they're like, it's not safe. It's not safe to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It's not safe to trust anybody. Mm-hmm. So to, to go past that defense network mode and to go to a deeper place of your consciousness, I think it's going to be necessary for some of these very ingrained programming um, that, that, and that really is just ways that we've learned to protect ourselves and to keep ourselves safe. And the external constraints have not allowed us to, to lay down those defenses um, in a voluntary way without some, um, a lot of assistance in a very chemical way. Uh, so I think that, you know, that's going to be a, a big um, way forward in the future. I'm hoping uh, that psychedelics will, will combine with IFS to give us not just a pathway, but also an internal, uh, easier internal process um, so that people aren't fighting their parts, you know, <laughs> and trying to think their way things through things versus, you know, like you said, from a somatic standpoint. For, many, for me, myself, you know, being in my body wasn't safe until this year, until I was introduced to psychedelics, uh, ketamine to be exact. I, I didn't feel safe in my own body. And so trying to protect myself constantly from all the external threats uh, was a full-time job, and, and there weren't very many places where I feel like I could, you know, start to to take that that roll off or that hat off. Um, so I think some of us are really going to need the help of psychedelic-assisted therapy, and in particular, group psychedelic-assisted therapy, so that we not only have a chemical process and we not only have our own self-energy, but to, to combine that with collective self-energy, I think really is going to be uh, key in the future. Beautiful. So I have two more questions uh, for now. That one is around, like you, you described, for example, you said now that uh, I, I didn't feel safe in my body, which is a combination of hyperactivation and like stress and fear uh, as one trauma symptom. The other coin uh, of that trauma set of trauma symptoms is absence. And, and I'm curious how in your work, like systemically relevant information that doesn't show up in our awareness, that is numbed or dissociated from, or is switched unconscious, which 
means that it it doesn't show up in my perception of you. It's that which is missing when I look at you, but I don't know it's missing because I don't feel that I don't feel it. I don't know that I don't see you in your entirety. I see Duran, but I don't know if the Duran that I see or Richard that I see is the one that's sitting there. I can only say what, and I find out through relating, for example. I, I can update my experience through relating. So I'm wondering, what, what's the, the element of absence, individual absence? And I think if you take it a step further, like collective absencing and all the social symptoms that that creates mm -hmm. and that massive depression sometimes in the social fields that absent fields create, and I, I wonder to hear from both of you how you how you experience that, how you see that in the IFS work, and uh, how you relate to that in your own in your own experience. So uh, another thing I liked about your book was your descriptions of the impact of trauma on internal systems, and we share a similar view of that. We, sh we just change the word some, mm -hmm. but. Trauma generally has the impact of burdening the, these very vulnerable parts of us that before they were hurt were these playful, lovely, excited, innocent inner children. And then they're the ones who get hurt by, the most by the trauma. And then once they get hurt, we don't want to be around them anymore. And we don't realize that we wind up exiling these parts of us that have the most uh, creativity and playfulness and desire for intimacy, we, we wind up locking them up in inner basements or abysses or um, caves and thinking we're just moving on from the trauma. We're just moving on from the memories and sensations and, and beliefs that came from the trauma. And so, most of us have lots of what we call exiles. And that I think you would call the shadow or that uh, we're not even aware of most of the time, and but still has an underground kind of influence over a lot of our decisions, the way we see the world, a lot of our beliefs about what's safe and what's not safe. And I'm, I'm not sure that's what you were asking about, but that's the way we conceptualize the unconscious in IFS. And so some of the exiles are these very vulnerable inner children-like parts. But then there are also parts that both our culture and our families find unacceptable. And so those often are protectors, like it could be anger in somebody's family that isn't ever allowed. And so the angry part also becomes an exile. And, and so the more of these exiles you have, the less, the more vacant you are, the, as you're saying, the less presence you have, the less access you have to what we call self. And uh, the more you're not even sure why you find, wind up doing things, but you're just doing them. And so a lot of the work, and uh, uh, we share this, uh, aspect of what the impact of trauma. A lot of the work is going to those exiled parts and bringing them back home so that they aren't disconnected and we have access to their qualities that we didn't have before. And you talk a lot about the impact of trauma disconnecting. You know, we, we started out pretty well connected in there. And now, and, and connectedness is a big concept in IFS. So it's reconnecting with all of these parts that that the trauma made us afraid of or you know just disdainful of. Yeah, I'd like to add a few things to that actually. Um the way that I kind of interpreted uh how my parts have impacted have been impacted by my own personal trauma or generational trauma that was passed down to me was through a model called the ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences. And so you can kind of go through this assessment and they give you a number. My number is nine out of 10, which is extremely high. And most people wouldn't guess that from looking at me, right? We think we know what a nine looks like in our society. We think that we, we can, you know, point out that that person is traumatized because you can see it. 
versus the the traumas that we kind of just carry around with us um, in a very invisible way. Um, so, you know, some of the things that people wouldn't guess about me was that my mother, I was, my mother actually uh, gave birth to me when she was 16 years old. And three months later, I was in the NICU uh, because she wasn't able to afford heat or gas uh, during the wintertime when I, I was born in August. And as the wintertime months rolled around, she had a three month baby, um, three month old baby in November in an apartment that had no heat. And so I actually got pneumonia and spent three days on life support. And that was, you know, even outside of my own uh, consciousness, right? For most of my life, I didn't realize what an impact that that had on my life. Um, the impact that it's kind of, the things that have happened because of that, right? Some of the other subsequent traumas um, that have influenced my life. But um, because of psych psychedelics, I was able to go back to that three-month-old child and kind of ask her what she needed. And she needed connection. So she was severely cut off from her caregiver, from any human connection for three whole days, and even actually from a life source, uh, a gen, you know, an authentic, um, real source of life uh, for three days, which is extremely traumatic. And so, as I, I can now feel that little that child inside of me, you know, that's a part of me, and I've been disconnected from that little baby for most of my life. Had no real understanding of what that experience was like or or how it impacted me. Um, and it isn't until now that I'm able to see that, you know, my mother being uh, struggling with addiction, her being in poverty, uh, us being kind of bounced around between family members, but all of that really uh, experience, um, I, I've, it enhanced the way that I experience connection, right? It's, it's made me very distrustful of most people, um, even myself at times. It's like, I can't even trust my own thoughts, my own, you know, what's real, what's not real. Um, but really coming back to, okay, what, who am I, right? At my core, who am I without the fears, without the traumas, without even the trauma that was passed down to me through DNA, um, being, you know, identified as a black woman and coming from a long lineage of black women who were traumatized and oppressed and marginalized, who, am, who would I have been outside of that, right? And, and who am I because of that even, you know? How is that really showing up in my day-to-day -day life? What parts of me have been influenced by those things? So, you know, knowing me knowing my story is really more important to me than other people hearing the story, understanding the story. It's first about me trusting that the story is real for me. Um, and that I have the power within me to heal that little girl who needs love and connection from me first. I, I would also say another example of that would be uh, a ketamine uh, session helped me to get back in touch with the intention that I set before a ketamine session uh, was that I wanted to find my way back to health. Um, because I grew up in poverty, you know, I experienced a lot of food deserts and um, just scarcity, you know, that my body really took as a, a huge survival threat. And, I, and it's been hard for me to update my system to let my system know that we're no longer in poverty, that we're not going to be homeless tomorrow, that we don't have to eat everything now. Um, that we will have money for food tomorrow, that we can select foods that are a little bit more pricey because they're good for our body. Um, you know, the little girl in me, I, I call her my four-year-old girl who's in poverty, you know, grew up in the projects. She still sometimes struggles with the idea that there's no scarcity when it comes to food or shelter or clothing or electricity or water um, because she experienced living without those things. And she knows that that is a very real threat. Um, and so I've been able to connect with her and to reassure her and remind her. Um, and that's another part of me updating my system. You know, it's resulted in physical changes, health changes, actually. You know, uh, my I was pre-diabetic for a while there. So I had to talk to her and let her know, like, if, if we don't, you know, start to work together, that this could be worse for our health. Um, I've been able to exercise more, move my body more now that I'm actually in my body. And I'm aware of what my body is needing, what's, what's good for my body, drinking more water. Um, but these are not things that you have the privilege of when you're living in survival. When you're in survival mode, like so many black and brown people still are today, um, you know, um, you know, hiding from the police or our, when our nervous system is heightened by the police, when you see a police officer, your nervous system has a reaction to that. And it's based on an experience, you know, that is actually very real. So I don't want to, you know, discount the trauma that is real and, and persistent for a lot of people of culture um, and the people that are marginalized around the world. And we have to have some sense of, you know, hope when we're not, when we're no longer in those situations. If we find ourselves in a different situation where we're no longer living in that scarcity 
place physically, how can we update our emotional self, our emotional body and our nervous system? It's very powerful to listen to you. Um, and also it's beautiful how, how deeply and personal you share your own experience. And also your own experience as somebody who is going through a healing process. So that's very precious. So thank you for that. It's very deep. Of course, there are so many things that we could go into because we share such a passion together. And um, one one thing um, I would still love to cover that you both already spoke to, I think that comes in here because like, I believe deeply that we are we're going to continue, of course, like individual work and trauma work and all this uh, psychotherapy work. But as you both already indicated also, and I also strongly believe that collective healing fields, like larger groups of people that express a certain quality with each other, and we can look at what are the ingredients of such a collective healing field, Mm -hmm. are a tremendous healing resource. So Mm -hmm. I experienced with hundreds and hundreds of people like spaces where one person spoke and and Mm -hmm. everybody was really there. Like there was like this tremendous collective presence and I'm sure you experienced that too. And, And so that collective individual healing system, like where the individual is an expression of the collective, because mm-hmm. it's very interesting. Many people might think, oh, the collective is there, like out there. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> so where am I when the collective is there? Or where am I when the biodiversity is there? Like it's out there somewhere. But biodiversity is this too, is mm-hmm. me too. So um, that, that the collective, like getting a sense, or so that the collective makes sense, is first of all like a connection between cognition and sensing. And and I'm wondering, maybe you can speak a little bit to what are the ingredients of a of a collective coherence building or a collective field that becomes like a healing space for everybody that's in it. You know, and then maybe you you can expand a little bit from your both experience what makes those group experiences or what makes those like collective healing spaces of different scale can be smaller groups can be very large groups um healing spaces Mm -hmm. so what 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 would you say are important ingredients and 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 do you share in a way a a vision of of healing uh, moving more and more also in the collective sphere like the collective healing. I, I can I can say a few things before I forget. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I have parts that are easily distracted. I have a, I tell people my superpower, one of my superpowers is uh, PTSD. Another one of my superpowers is ADHD. So these are things that these are part of, <laughs> I'm learning to, you know, help work together. They, they help me kind of in some ways and not so much in other ways. Um, but my easily distracted part is like, let's let's get this out. So I would say uh, three of the things that come to mind for me when I think of like kind of ways to ground collective healing or in collective healing spaces uh, to ground each of us to each other or to connect each of us to each other is a common language. Um, That's what I love about IFS. I mean, everybody can say a part of me, you know, everybody can identify or relate to that, to that languaging. And we also have another word that we say subgroup to kind of help folks not feel so alone when they're sharing their experience. So if I say, you know, a part of me feels um, like I'm going to be disconnected or people aren't going to understand me, um, that people are going or are going to judge me or going to uh, maybe, you know, start to feel offended by me, um, you know, that I'm worried that I might say the wrong things. There are These are often common subgroups. These are often common fears you know, that we can say, okay, these are parts of us that are, are here. So acknowledging all the parts using a common language seems really important to me. I also think having accountability and acknowledging uh, power dynamics is really important. Uh, you know, there, like I said, there's intention, which is, you know, no, I don't intend to, to use power over someone. I'm really setting an intention to, to come from a place of internalized power. But I may, in that process, you know, one of my protectors may start to feel defensive or um, attacked, and then I may start to engage in a power struggle. So just me acknowledging whatever power I bring into the room, you know, whatever power has been perceived or projected on me, 
um, as a leader. You know, I have to say, yes, people see me as a leader. People see me as an influencer um, in this communal healing space. I want everyone to see me as another part of the collective that's doing my own work too, that I am someone who has to model um, what I'm saying I want to see in others. Um, so that's why I share so freely and I allow myself to be vulnerable because that's the expectation that I'm asking of others. Um, so I think that that's important, acknowledging uh, power dynamics. And like I said, circling back, being able to stay connected, to make a commitment that we're going to you know, work through this together. Uh, Brene, I work with Brene Brown a lot and she calls it rumbling, that we're in the rumble. You know, no one gets to tap out. We're in this together. Um, now, we're not we're not expecting people to, uh, you know, recreate trauma for themselves. If they need to set a boundary and take space, of course, that's important. Um, and, and honoring that everyone can do that for themselves, that no one here needs to be taken care of, that there is no need for the rescuer or the victim state or the persecutor mode, but that we're all here doing our work together. Um, and we're going to see each other as equals uh, in that process. Another parallel I saw in your book is the comparing the system of an individual to the system of a larger organization like a country or some kind of collective. And so when we work with individuals, what I find is if these protective parts uh, feel safe and can drop their weapons, can drop their guard, then what I'm calling self just emerges spontaneously. And that self for me isn't isolated in one person. There's a, a field of self that can drop into us and, and we can embody that, but it is much more of a collective field. And in your, when you're in a group, and in various ways, you're, you're, some of the ways that Duran was talking about, you're helping everybody see that this is a safe space and their protectors can drop their weapons. Then the self of each person begins to, to tap into that field of self that is, and just like when you're working with an individual and they begin to access some of that, uh, healing just starts to happen. You don't need a therapist to tell you what to do. It just starts to happen. Unburdening starts to happen. And uh, you have a beautiful description of that in your work, in the book also, where one person says one thing and then everybody feels it. And then, and there's another parallel, which is the, the witnessing is very parallel. So when we go to try to heal exiles, we ask to see what happened where they're stuck in the past and, and the, and they start to show these scenes, and Duran spoke to that song mm. with her, her infant part. And that is healing for this collective self to witness what happened in the past that created such pain. So again, I just saw lots of parallels in our work. And, and also, again, just to reiterate, a lot of that comes from having people, and when we do the trainings, we often have a lot of assistance all of whom know how to hold this energy of self. So having people who already know how to access that, and in addition to the, the C word qualities I talk about, there is a, a vibrating energy that is very palpable that runs through your body when you access what we call it self energy. And I think in your book, the parallel would be to what you call light, that as the leader and also the assistants are accessing that vibrating light, then it just resonates and, and creates that field in the larger group. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I love how you draw the parallels because that's very true. It's very true. And also how important it is that, that uh, some people in the room that can hold that space because it's already more internalized or healed mm -hmm. or integrated. And that mm -hmm. creates like a certain level of coherence. There's one, uh, there's one more thing, and then I think we will need to wrap up. I see we already exceeded our time. It's it's very interesting, and I love to you know because we're using different language, but we are we are we are, we are we are resonating a lot with with each other. <laughs> um, I I discover in a in a the development of any kind of system. Let's say it's a it's a human being, it's a family, it's an organization, it's a culture. 
what shows up for me and I many of the people that go through our training programs or many you know many people who are on a path of development individual or spiritual or collective show a certain pattern of development which means there's a certain coherence building that the two of you spoke to now so you you establish safety security you establish a relational environment that is sound and so that allows for for deeper parts to come up now, when we build coherence, it feels like, oh, we are building something, but coherence feels safe enough from a certain level that a new level of fragmentation can come up. That's right. And so then suddenly it looks like we lost the coherence. So some people That's meditate right. and then they come into a great state and then they, after two days, it looks like you never meditated. You That's know, right. you feel all upside down and it's kind of, and you say, I, it's, I, you know, I'm meditating now for three years and now I'm again at back to square one. But it's not true. But if, if we, like for junior practitioners, it, that's, that's very disillusioning. But for more senior practitioners, we know that process, that every new level of coherence allows a new level of detox, like that's a deeper, right. deeper parts to come up. That's and right. I would love if, to hear if you resonate with that, and I, I see that you do, and maybe you can each speak to that, and then maybe we can uh, summarize our conversation. Well, let me yeah. start with let me start with that, Duran, because I'm going to forget if I don't. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So when people meditate, or as Duran's been talking about, when they do psychedelics, there's something about that that brings forth a huge amount of self, and with that comes an invitation to parts that had been exiled to come forward, and so. You feel really good, and then suddenly these parts come out, and they come out in a big way, and then it gets scary. Mm -hmm. And it can get scary for the, the facilitator, too. And so that's some of what we want to bring, is just the, the norm. That's, that's a very good process. It's a good thing that all this is coming if you don't get scared of it, and you just start to work with it. It, it uh, can provide a lot of very deep healing. Um, so, yeah, I think we're totally parallel in that area, too. I, I really like that in your book, too. Yeah, great. Great. I'm happy. Yeah, and I, I would guess I would just add to that by saying one of my favorite questions in IFS is what what is that part afraid would happen? Uh, you know, when we're so attached to familiarity, our ego, should I say our ego, not our actual self, we get so attached to what we know, what, you know, what is already currently is, um, and we open ourselves up, up to what could be or what's new or what, what could be more or expansive. Um, our, our parts get afraid <laughs> that, you know, they've been holding on and protecting us in such a, you know, very severe way that they, they're not ready for anything new. It shocks the system. And so when something new enters the system, it's like, oh, whoa, what's, what's happening? And they're afraid of letting go. Oftentimes they're afraid of that, that new thing that that's unfamiliar, that's not known that causes us to feel vulnerable in a, in a way that's actually could be, you know, opening for healing. Um, but we're, we're often just afraid of that feeling, the afraid of not knowing, the afraid mm -hmm. of letting go, the afraid of not being in control. I know for me, that's a big one. When mm -hmm. I feel like I don't have the, my, you know, a handle on things as a, a, a retired military member, it feels like, oh, this is not safe. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. We've actually had that come up a lot. Um, in Black Therapist Rock, we do a IFS training that is predominantly Black. And so quite naturally, racism and topics of systemic oppression come up. Topics of poverty, food deserts, um, you know, health care disparities, all of these things are going to rise to the top because they're in the collective. Right. And so I tell folks that it's better out than in. You know, now that we actually know that what's what's been there this whole time, we begin to acknowledge it and even acknowledge some of the fears of acknowledging it um, and, and, and different you know capacities. Like when we have a, a mixed race or a mixed culture um, environment, whether it be military and non-military, um, you know, people who come from middle class versus people who come from poverty. Anytime you have a, a cross cultural difference in a collective, these things are going to surface. So we have to ask ourselves, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid will happen if we start to get honest about what's already here? Beautiful. 
both of you it's such a pleasure and uh and i'm happy that we are part of a movement together even if we you know as we said there are so many parallels even if we call things differently but uh we i think we we are very passionate about a, a similar movement and i and i and it was beautiful for me to be part of of your explorations and both of your you know, depth and um, bringing healing into a bigger social environment. So mm -hmm. I'm happy that for us to meet again and to continue this conversation. So thank you very much, uh, Richard and Duran. It's a pleasure to see you. And I'm happy that you're collaborating. And uh, I think it's a very fruitful pairing and uh, collaboration. So thank you, both of you. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. I did too, Tom. And I hope we can talk more. Oh, I would love that. I would love that, yeah. Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel.